It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. And welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that was recording in time, but anyway, that's our new intro, um, which was a, launched a huge success last week. And uh, never, it's not all about us, though, because we're here to talk mainly this week about uh, the Masters, and in particular, congratulations to Yan Bingtao. Fantastic final, I thought. Fantastic win. Fantastic winner for Snooker. And we're going to be reflecting on that. We had a few emails about the Masters, and then later on we'll be going through a few... Other issues. I'm going to throw. I'm going to throw one at you straight away. Mm. What would you give the Masters out of ten? Yeah. See, what always happens is when you ask me these things, I give a number and then we talk about it, and I always end up revising it upwards. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you've got to bear in mind the unique, literally unique context of it this year. Um, but bearing in mind that the Masters is always brilliant, I'm going to give it as a Masters seven and five eighths. <laughs> right. Well, I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna go a sort of seven plus. So yeah, I'm yeah. probably in the same ballpark. We know it was a different setup. That can't be helped. I thought day one because obviously Judd Trump had pulled out, Jack Lazowski pulled out, and we didn't know at that point if anyone else would withdraw. Mm. You kind of think this could be not great. The first day wasn't great. Let's be honest, it wasn't. No. But but it seemed to and and it's kind of the way the matches were scheduled. It seemed to get better every day in the first round. The matches got better, they got more interesting. And the whole tournament built to, you know, a great climax. We'll talk about the O'Sullivan-Higgins match later. Um, mm. And then the final itself, of course, was, I thought, absolutely brilliant. I actually thought, you know, people were sort of talking about the UK. I thought it was a better final than the UK final. It wasn't as close. I thought the standard was better. I thought it was more dramatic in terms of how it unfolded. And we've been left with, you know, this, this 20-year-old who... He's completely in a generation on his own in the top 16. I think the, I think the next youngest player, I think he's Karen Wilson, who's 29. I would um, think so, yeah. Yeah, so Yan Bingtao, you know, has turned up first time. And I don't think you can say, because we've had so many tournaments there, and they've all been won by top players, you can't say, well, would he have done it at the Ali Pali? It doesn't matter. He did it there against top quality opposition. Um, you know, every credit to him. Well, first of all, I agree entirely uh, that it was better than the UK final. I don't think there's even a discussion about that. Um, I think also uh, the question as to whether he would have done it at Alexandra Palace, I don't think it would have made any difference to him because 
people were saying throughout the week, oh, he doesn't seem to get phased by anything. I entirely agree with that. But I'd even go a stage further. I think he thrives on the big crowds, the big pressure, the big occasions. We saw that uh, even three or four years ago. I think it was at the Welsh Open where he came out to play, you know, a big match and, you know, got a great reception and kind of cupped his ear as he yeah. was walking into the arena. I mean, that's yeah. fantastic stuff. That's what you want to see. Now, I think Yan Bingtao winning it was definitely what we needed last week because, yeah, OK, we would have remembered it as a unique Masters. But if it had just been won by Trump or Robertson or O'Sullivan or someone like that, we probably wouldn't have remembered it as a tournament all that much. And we needed something big to happen. And we really, really got that. I mean, off the top of my head, the only players who have won the Masters younger than that are O'Sullivan and Hendry. That's right, isn't it? And yeah, I mean, you're first talking there. First, for the first time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, they, um, you know, you're talking the two greatest players of all time there. So he's put himself in that bracket. And as for John Higgins, I mean, that was a great, story to go with it as well because I mean a couple of thoughts occurred to me well one was pointed out by John himself that Jan is basically the same age as John's boys I mean what a what a thing to happen and also I was thinking back uh getting a bit nostalgic because obviously no none of us could be there this year um but thinking back to the first Masters I ever worked on 22 years ago John Higgins obviously won it now imagine if someone had said then there will be a point in the future where John plays in a Masters final against someone who isn't even born yet because Jan wasn't at the time and then you add to that the fact that even that was four years after John had first played in the Masters and indeed four years after he'd first played in the final. So an incredible story for him to still be competing at that level. What I thought was interesting, towards the end, he played some very bad stuff. He really did. And he played some very ropey shots that even five or six years ago, you would have been very surprised to see him play. And coming oh. towards the finish when it was so close, I thought Jan actually handled it like the veteran that John is much more than John himself did. Oh, definitely. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so yesterday, Monday, the morning after, uh, let's just say a well-known player, <laughs> well-known player messaged me to say to say Higgins threw it away. Yambing Town didn't win it. Now, I think that's harsh, but there is also a slight ring of truth to to it, and this is what it boils down to. I actually said this on the commentary. It was clear that Higgins recognised the importance of the occasion much more than Yambing yeah. Town, and there's a number of reasons for that. And the main one is age. John Higgins mm. is 45. He knows in his heart he's, and it's just a fact, he's much near the end of his career than the start. He knows there may not be that many more opportunities to win. I mean, he he, he had to play really well to get to the final. Let's let's not forget he could have lost to Mark Allen. You know, maybe mm. should maybe should have lost to him. Uh, had to play really well to get to the final. He knows that was a big chance to win a major title. There won't be that many more real, realistically to come. So he was uh, well aware of that. Yan Ming Tao is twenty. When you're twenty. You've got no idea at all how young you are. You really don't. Mm. You're just there. You've got not got the scars. And he was clearly loving it. We saw that the way he played the whole tournament. He was in his element. So he didn't appreciate the, the occasion as much. And, and that definitely contributed to some of the frames Higgins lost. Um, you know, that blue that he missed, you know, that was basically a twitch up. Um, that shot he played to going off was just, you know, just a massive misjudgment. And it shows you how, what, what that is really is the, the stature of the tournament. That would have meant a lot clearly to John. 15 years on from winning the Masters for the last time, that would have meant a lot to him. And I think that was definitely a difference. But here's the thing, OK? And this is why I don't agree with this thing about, you know, Yan Bing Tao didn't win it. He had every right to bottle it as well. It's still, mm. he's, still playing, yeah. he's, still, he's still playing for quarter of a million. He stood up tall. Some of the balls he knocked in, you know, the clearance he made to, to force the respot in the first frame of the night was, it was sensational. So, you know, he 
is the deserving winner and he is the winner. He wasn't given it, he had to win it and he did. Yeah. Now, I can see the case for people saying John threw it away. I mean, it's a bit harsh maybe to put it in those terms, but I can at least see where that's coming from. I mean, you look at the early frames on Sunday night. I mean, John could have won pretty much all of them and had the match wrapped up, you know, nice and early and got to bed at the sort of time that 45-year-olds go to bed. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, that doesn't mean Jan didn't win it. I never buy into this stuff. And you hear this a lot in golf as well. People say, oh, Nick Falvo didn't win any of his majors. You know, other <laughs> players threw them away. What a load of absolute nonsense. Um, I'll tell you who Jan reminds me of a lot, actually. And I was thinking this during the week is uh, Mark Williams. Right. And now he's uh, not as good as Mark Williams was at that age. He's certainly not as loud as Mark Williams was at that age. <laughs> but he has this thing, he, you know, he doesn't necessarily pummel you with a succession of big breaks. But, and we saw this a lot through the week, he wins matches and he gets through to the later stages of tournaments. And you're looking at it thinking, well, how did that happen? Because he hasn't played outstandingly well in the conventional sense. That's fine. You don't have to play well in the conventional sense. You can play well in a way that wins you matches. And he's just so good at doing that, it seems, winning matches without getting a succession of centuries and big clearances and that. Now, I know he can produce that at times. But he's just very, very good. And I know this sounds like such an obvious thing to say, but people who know the game know what I mean. He's very good at winning matches. He's mm. very good at winning frames. And you, you know what I mean by that. And I think we saw a lot of that through the week. And another thing that was said by a lot of people that I absolutely agree with, he looks like someone who's going to get a lot better as mm. the years go by. Now, most players get better after the age of 20 anyway, but he looks like someone who, once he gets more experience and a bit more confidence and you know is more accustomed to winning, I think he's going to improve a lot. And that's why he is... The first player you can really say, OK, this is someone who could come through now and join Ding Zhonghui as a genuine Chinese star. Because there's only been, still incredibly now, 16 years after Ding won the China Open, there's never been another Chinese player who's been a genuine top four, top five, top six player. Nobody yet actually has really come all that close to it. Yan Bingtao looks like he has all the potential to do that. And you, you wonder why that is. You look at all these Chinese kids who, you know, maybe get a wild card for one of the tournaments and look like a world beater at the age of 16 or 17. They don't follow up on it. Now, why is that? It's because maybe they're too attacking. Maybe they don't have the all-round game. Maybe they don't actually like the limelight when they're thrust into it and become a leading player. And maybe when they inevitably come and move to the UK, after a while, they get a bit homesick and they don't settle. You can't say any of those things about Yan Bingtao. And that's why I think... This really wasn't just a one-off or anything remotely like it. I think we'll be looking back on this as one of those big moments in the game's history when someone really announced themselves on the very biggest stage, and it will prove to be the start of a very, very long time as one of the best players. And as you say, he's so much younger than all the other top players. I mean, you've got to say, this is someone who 10 years from now could be in a, the, the sort of position that Judd is in as we speak today. Well, um, in terms of what sort of player he is, it, it reminds me of something Graham Dot said about himself. He said, I'm not the best player in any category, but, mm. I'm, good, I'm, but I'm good in every category. And that's true. He, there aren't obvious weaknesses. And we saw that the first two deciders he won. The first one against Neil Robertson, he had a, he had about 40-point lead and he just put every colour bar the green on, the, on a cushion to completely shut the frame down. The next decider against Maguire, he made his highest ever break, 1-4-1. So two completely contrasting ways to win deciding frames. Some of the pundits were saying at the start of the week, we're not quite sure how to sort of categorise him. He doesn't need categorising. Mm. He's, just a, he's just a really good player and he's won the Masters. Now, we've had some, uh, some emails uh, which we will, we will go to. As you can imagine, a lot of people enjoyed the tournament. Callum Law, first of all, he said, starting with the final, having been a Higgins supporter since I started watching snooker 15 years ago, I was gutted. The chances that were spurned to go 6-3 and then 8-5 ahead 
proved costly. However, Jan produced his best when it mattered. I think it's a great result for the sport to have a young player like Jan establishing himself. I know he won the Riga Masters, but this victory should project him onto another level. With regards to Higgins, I think he's proved he's still capable of winning the biggest tournaments, particularly with the work he's put in with the new Q, Ferrell and Shorter Bridge. But one concern, not just at the Masters, but over the season and last season, is that under pressure, his safety is letting him down and putting, not putting his opponents under enough pressure. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that and whether you feel Higgins can still win tournaments. We'll come to your second part of your email in a minute, Callum. But yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it was noticeable that Jan was not only matching Higgins on the safety, I would argue he was, he was actually playing the better safety. And that all comes down to, again, I guess, recognising the, the, the significance of the moment. John, you know, knows that he, he is towards the end of his career at the top level. And to get to a Masters final... It would have been a huge deal for him to get to another one. And I think the, the importance of the occasion, this is why the thing about no crowds, I'm not sure that's really got anything to do with it. It's still the Masters. And I, and I, I think from what we've seen, we've seen enough snooker behind closed doors to realise that actually, when it's played in complete eerie silence, that actually brings its own different sort of pressure, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. Uh, we'll just go to the second half of the email. Callum's email. He says, in terms of the Masters as a whole, it's a great event with so many dramatic and exciting matches. I also think for many people, snooker is a beacon of hope. Although I'm, I haven't been impacted anywhere near as badly as many people during the pandemic. Hang on, someone's just popped up on my screen, which I'll get rid of. He said, although I haven't been impacted anywhere near as badly as many people during the pandemic, I think everyone, myself included, has bad days and feels a bit down because of the situation. But having eight days of terrific snooker to watch was a great escape from everything that's going on in the world and kept me very happy and upbeat. My last point quickly is that for BBC viewers, it was great to hear John Virgo back in the commentary box. While many people may disagree with me, I think the light and shade he can provide during commentary adds to the spectacle. One minute he can be talking about the detailed technical intricacies of the game and specific shots before completely changing the tone with one, one of his catchphrases, one-liners or stories. In close matches, in my opinion, he's also very good at heightening the drama. Not everyone will agree, but I always enjoy listening to John and think he's a fine commentator. Well, on the first point, I think you're absolutely right. And this goes in, I think, to... In particular, the Higgins-O'Sullivan match is saying about people basically being cheered up by the Masters. And you're absolutely right. I think quite a few people have said to me, and you know, we've had emails from people, for example, their granddaddy shielding, for example, he's been indoors for months and you know, looking to watch snooker, looking to, to sort of fill his time with something he enjoys. And that match, definitely. I mean, I, I wasn't commentating, but I watched it and I just thought, wow, this is great. <laughs> it's, two mm. great it's two great players. I didn't, I didn't particularly care who won or lost. I just wanted to enjoy it. Um, putting on a show, you knew also, and I think this is why it sort of resonated, you knew that a lot of people would be watching who maybe didn't normally watch snooker. Um, and it, it, it was a great advertisement for snooker. It was two legends of the sport playing real high-quality snooker. And it certainly put me in a good mood. And I think also made me sort of appreciate more the fact that in a very small way, I was involved with the tournament. You know, but this is something that people are actually looking at, enjoying, not just snooker fans, but maybe on a sort of wider level, because it was also live, I think, on the BBC all night as well. So there would have been a big audience for it. Yeah. So 25 years or so in the game and you're finally in a good mood. That really says it all <laughs> about, about John and Ronnie. Yeah, I mean, the other... Yes, it had to happen eventually. The, the thing about that, um, about how it brought so much comfort to people, I think what also added to that was the fact that we associate this time of year so much with the Masters. I mean, it used to be late January, then it moved into February for, for a long time. But since about 2006 now, I think it's been in that sort of... Uh, mid-January kind of slot. So that added that, that extra bit of comfort. The point that was made there a few minutes ago about Higgins' safety letting him down, completely agree. And it's been going on for a couple of years now. And 
I think there wasn't much talk about that, actually, after the world final that he played against Trump in 2019. We were all raving about how brilliantly Trump had played, and rightly so. But I thought Higgins' safety actually let him down a lot in that match. And it was the combination of how well Judd played and how John had maybe been a bit, you know, out of character on the safety front. That's why it ended up being such a big uh, margin of victory in the end. As for whether or not he can win tournaments, definitely. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. And I think you would have to believe that more than ever now after some of the snooker he played last week. Okay. Um, one thing I'd say about the higgins Silver match, um, it was great to see it. And it was what was significant was it was on at night. But yeah, but it's worth saying as well, in normal circumstances, that would have been on in the afternoon. Yes. In fact, it, was, it was originally scheduled for the afternoon and changed because the BBC in normal times... And we spoke last week, we won't go over all that again about their scheduling, but of course they had schools programmes on in the afternoon this time. So, in fact, their major programming was in the evening. So it was switched to the evening. But in normal times, that would have been played in the afternoon. And I think that's been a slight issue. There was a, there was a UK Championship not so long ago that Ronnie O'Sullivan won. And the only session he played at night was the last session of the final. Every other mm. session was the afternoon for them. And I'm not sure, you know, looking at it objectively, that's great for snooker because obviously in the day, if you put all the best matches, in inverted commas, in the daytime, People at school, people at work don't see them. So, you know, it was great people got to see that. But had this been just a normal time, a lot of people wouldn't. Anyway, on John Virgo, I agree with the, with what Callum says. I do think John lends a lot of uh, kind of class to it and continuity. It was good, good that he was able to come over for it because um, he started commentating in the 80s. I mean, he was commentating mm. with Ted Lowe, Jack Carnham, obviously Clive. So he was there in the kind of the earlier days of snooker. Um, and I, yeah, I think you're right. He, he does add light and shade. He's a, he's a, just a good figure in the sport. He's played a lot of roles in the sport, obviously as a player, most most importantly. But also, he, you know, he became known as an entertainer. He did his impressions, and then through that, got big break and became a sort of wider personality, not just known for playing. Well, I would say better known for all the other stuff. Big break in particular. Um, he was chairman of the WPBSA. He's been a commentator for a long time, so he's played a lot of roles in the sport. Uh, my favourite story, though, he told this himself, was when he started commentating. I think it was his first commentary or one of his very first commentaries. He was on with Jack Carnham, who was known, let's be let's be fair, for being a bit cantankerous at times. Mm. And it, so they went in the box at the start and Jack, you know, r- ran him through the sort of how it works. He said, you know, you, you come in when you want, John. But he said, it's very important that I wrap the frames up. So when we get to the colours, you know, you stop. I'll, I'll wrap it up. It'll all be fine. OK, no problem. So <laughs> frame one. They get down to the colours. John puts his microphone down. Okay, you wrap it up. Whoever's playing, they play. They need all the all the balls. Okay, so brown to blue. They come wrong side of the blue, right? And he's thinking this could go wrong to get on the pink now because he's got, got to come in out of bulk. This could go wrong. Maybe I should. Jack say nothing about this. I should say something. You know, I'm I'm here as the player. I'll just say you know. Well, this this potentially could still go wrong. It looks easy, but he's wrong side of the blue. Might not get in the pink as as planned. So he he says this and he he turns around. And Jack has literally thrown, taken his headphones off, thrown them on the desk, thrown his mm. microphone on the desk, as if to say, "How dare we're on the brown? How can you? How dare you speak? We're on yeah. the brown." Anyway, that was his introduction to commentary. It's, I, become, I, it's become a little more relaxed since then, I think. The whole uh, thing. yes, yeah, very much so. He, um, I think he mentioned that story in his book. Uh, I don't know whether you read that one. I think it was called "Say Goodnight, JV." came out about three years ago, and I think he mentioned that. And it's fair to say he's pretty generous in his assessments of most people, but not with Jack Carnham. He tells a few stories about him that that are not particularly complimentary. I agree with you. It was great to see him back. And again, it added to that whole sense of, you know, reassurance. John Virgo's on the BBC commentating on the Masters. You wouldn't quite say all's well with the world because we know that's not the case. 
but uh, it makes you feel a little bit better about things. And it'll be such a sad day when he goes. And, you know, he's getting on a bit now, so he might not be doing it for that much longer. Um, and I know you said there, not everyone, or maybe it was our correspondent said, yeah. not everyone would agree. Uh, I think everyone would agree. I don't know anyone who doesn't think John Burgos is a good commentator. Oh, well. And he's also got... You're, you not on what... You're not on Twitter, though. Oh, well, there, there you go. That's why I'm not on Twitter, yeah. as we discussed most weeks. But um, he's a bit uh, like, you know, when Willie died last year, we talked about his role in the game and the fact that he's much, much better known uh, among the general public than perhaps his achievements in the game would merit. Now, they were both very good players, don't get me wrong. I think John Virgo would be in a, a similar class as well. I remember being at a, a pub quiz a few years ago when the pubs were open, um, and John Virgo was the answer to a question. And I, I, when the question was asked, I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to be the only person to know this. This is going to make me look good. But everyone at the table knew exactly who John Virgo was. I don't think any of them were snooker fans. So that just shows you, you know, the, the, the affection that he has among the general public. And I hope he's around doing the commentary for a really long time. Yeah, I agree. And one of the problems, of course, in his playing career is there's no footage of his UK victory. That was his yeah. big victory in 1979. There's no footage. Alpha Bonzi has written, and uh, three quick questions from Alpha Bonzi, which we will answer reasonably quickly. Number one, John Higgins, is this the end? Well, I don't think so. I mean, he's oh. been in the Masters final. What I will say is, though, I, you know, clearly, I don't think there's going to be that many, just sort of the logic of time. There's not going to be that many more necessarily big finals. I wouldn't be surprised to see him win a tournament, like you said. Um, Stephen Hendry, is the comeback already over? Well, of course, Hendry was due to play in this new Pro Series event, which, which we will talk about later. Um, and I heard him on the BBC, actually, on Sunday afternoon, explaining why he withdrew. Um, he said he doesn't. He told World Snooker Tour he didn't feel ready to play in January. There's another stage in March. He said, can you please put me in March and I'll play in it? And they didn't. So he withdrew. So it was kind of as simple as that. You can't look after everyone, but it was a bit of a missed opportunity, I think, not to, not to have him in that event. Um, so he says he'll come back. He's going to have to, though. He, he mentioned now the Welsh Open. Um, he's going to have to play at some point. If, he, if the only thing he plays in is the World Qualifiers, then that is not a good strategy, I think, because he'll be so ring rusty. You know, I can't see any chance of him qualifying. Uh, the final question from Alfie. Yan Bing Tao, future world champion? Well, possibly. Uh, he's won the Masters. I'm not one who likes to say he'll definitely win three world titles. It's completely arbitrary. There's no definite. There's players who in the past we think will be world champion and they haven't been. You know, Ding, Ding, you would have thought by now would have won it. He hasn't. So he's a potential world champion. I'm not going to say whether he'll win it or not. We'll see how he develops. It will be interesting to watch him, how he now, mm. what, what, how he is now after winning this. One thing I'll say as well is, and this kind of ties in uh, to, to sort of talking about the, the top players, we need to see more of him now. We need to see him on the TV. It's no good getting to the Welsh Open and Yan Bing Tao's on table four, okay? He's won the Masters. If you're going to say that's a big event, and it is, I think everyone agrees with that, we now need to see him foregrounded. He's a young player. He's exactly what the game needs. One of the problems at some of these, particularly the Home Nations events, actually, is that it's basically just a numbers game. The first two days, there'll be 10 TV matches in the first round, and it's basically the 10 highest-ranked players in the, in the sport. Doesn't matter who they're playing, you know, you've got to obviously O'Sullivan Trump, okay, they're gonna be on. But then it's like, oh, who's the world number four? We'll put him on. Who's the world number six? Let's actually look at this slightly differently. He's a new star. I actually said that. He snooked his new star on the commentary. Let's see him now. So it's a bit complicated that the Welsh have got to say because BBC Wales obviously want the Welsh players on because it's their event. But he deserves now to be foregrounding more, and I hope I hope that, that happens. Um, yeah. Just on that point, you know, if we're going to just see O'Sullivan and Trump all the time, then what happens when they're not around as top 
players anymore. Wow. You know, p- people won't have been given the opportunity to, you know, really become as familiar with, with the big stars. So, yeah, let's, whatever Jan is playing in next, let's get him on. Let's see him on the main table. Let's see how he builds on that because that's got to be more interesting than seeing another early round, Definitely. you know, pummeling handed out by O'Sullivan or Trump or someone like that. As for is it the end for Higgins, I'd say in many respects, it might be not quite the beginning, but maybe the beginning of a good era for him because he looks to me like he's really knuckling down now. He knows about all these things that, you know, he is getting on a bit and he just wants to make the most of the few remaining years of his career and, uh, you know, as a top player. But then again, you know, we're saying there won't be many more big finals for him. We might have been saying that about him about 10 years ago. Yeah. And he's gone on doing it, you know. And I as just, for him, go on, sorry. No, just on Higgins. I just, it'll be, I mean, I said, you know, how will Yam, you know, how, how will he develop after this? How is Higgins going to take this defeat? He was clearly gutted at the end. Yeah. He will have driven back. It's a long drive back, six hours, seven hours. He will be thinking about all the shots that could have been different, you know, all the frames he could have won. It's a body blow, let's let's be clear, because it was a big chance to win the Masters and, and he didn't. And, you know, I, I don't think it's reasonable to say, oh, he'll come and win the next event. It might take him a while to, to get yeah. over this. Yeah, yeah. Hendry, I'm going to say. Yeah, I was good. well, actually, the, the other thing, just before I move on to that, when I was talking about Higgins there, and the question is at the end from, I remember being on the radio after, didn't Murphy lose a UK final? To, uh, was it against Selby? Around about 2000, yeah. And I remember uh, being on the radio after that and said, uh, you know, do you think he can recover from this? Do you think he can go on with his career? I mean, what? I don't even think he was 30 yet at the time. He certainly wasn't much past it. So, look, he's just been in the final. It's like I remember sitting with you in a bar in Sheffield. No, uh, that wasn't me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, hard to believe, isn't it? And uh, I was a bit despondent because Arsenal had lost at home to Leeds that day, which meant Man United were the champions. And you were actually like, oh, yeah, you know, it's really tough for you, isn't it? You've only finished second this year. So it's a bit like that with Higgins now, you know. Yeah. You know, Higgins is just yeah. going. I'm the man to come to for sympathy, clearly. No, def- definitely not. Definitely not. Well, maybe now that you're finally in a good mood after mm. all these years, as you confessed to earlier. It's yeah. a bit like that with Higgins. He's just finished second in one of the biggest tournaments in the world. And the thing about Hendry, just on that, I would love to have been there when John Parrott uh, bumped into him or was working with him or whatever for the first time since it emerged that he'd withdrawn because he was giving him such a ribbing at the UK about how it was the worst comeback ever. Well, now surely it's even worse. He's actually entered the tournament and not turned up to play in it. But I agree with what you were saying. I mean, even as it is now, even if he enters everything he can enter between now and the world qualifiers, I think he's not given himself enough match play and enough practice. I mean, he's got to go there and win a series of best of 19s. I'd be surprised if he got an easy draw in the first qualifying round, he might get through, but I couldn't see him getting any further than that, just on the basis of how little he's played. Well, interestingly, on, on, on the World Championship, Barry Hearn has, has, has said he did a thing with Betfred, the sponsors. The World Championship will be at the Crucible, um, mm. possibly behind closed doors. We don't know about that. There was speculation it might not be at the Crucible. It will be, because I, I said this last year and kind of no one listened. Sheffield have the contract for the World Championship, so it has to be in Sheffield. Unless there was an absolute sort of government decree, it cannot happen there. It's going to happen there. But what I was wondering was, do the qualifiers really need to be there? I don't think so. It's about the Crucible. If you can play the Milton Keynes... I think that's preferable. And then you can't, because you said best of 19s. Of course, last year, they were best of 11s. Well, of course, um, yeah, that because is it was play, Because it was played in, at, the, at the English Institute of Sport and to keep the numbers down and everything, they didn't want people yeah. going. It would be easier to play best of 19s at Milton Keynes. And personally, I think that's preferable. Easy for me to say, I know. But I don't, I know Sheffield, Sheffield have the contract for the World Championship. Do the qualifiers really have to be there? I'm not so sure. We will see in due course. We haven't finished with our Masters, though, uh, coverage because 
um, coverage, uh, discussion, because uh, Rob Dunn writes, he says, just a quick question with regards to the number of frames in a session. We had another after we had another after 11 p.m. finish for the Masters final. Just thinking, if the final is best of 19, why not play nine frames in the afternoon session instead of the usual eight? Obviously, this doesn't guarantee an earlier finish, as nobody knows how long frames are going to last. But ultimately, it'll mean one less frame being played on a night and a better chance of an earlier finish. I wonder how many casual viewers just end up turning off late at night because it seems like it's just going to finish late for them. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think, Rob, the problem is, of course, and you've said it, you don't know what the final's going to be. The reason they have they don't have nine frames in the afternoon is because there's a danger, of course, it could end up 8-1 to someone, and then you're left with you know two or three frames at night. They want Basically, they want people watching post-10 o'clock because, to be blunt, there's not much else on telly then, and they're going to get a big audience, they're going to get a big share. TV executives think about all this stuff. They don't necessarily think about, as you've said, people turning off and going to bed. They just think, you know, we'll get like a 40% share. You know, it means nothing to anyone else. But to TV people, you know, this is the sort of thing that excites them. Um, there's a bit too much of a romanticising romanticizing of late night snooker because, of course, again, it's just a British filter. In Europe, for example, on Eurosport, they're an hour ahead in a lot of countries, some, some countries more. So it's late there. It's really late there. You know, it's post-midnight. People do have work on the Monday um, the other thing is, I mean, I'm not with the Masters. I think the Masters should be best of 19. But, you know, a lot of other finals seem a bit too long to me. I think best of 17 is a perfect length for, for most finals. Um, you know, the World Grand Prix was didn't seem to me to be best of 19. Uh, best of 17, 8 and 9, uh, I think that's that's quite a good split. Um, but, yeah, you, the, the, the central issue is you just don't know how long the final's going to be. And also, it's not about number of frames. It's how long the frames are. You can have... You know, you can have like a best of three final. If every frame's an hour and a half, it's still a long final. So mm. it's it's difficult for the for the TV. But this is what they this is what they've settled on, I guess. And you look at it how it could have gone. As I was saying earlier, there were a couple of tight frames early on in the evening. Could easily have gone the other way. It seems remarkable that we're saying it about someone who lost ten eight. But John could actually have won that final very comfortably from the position he was in, and then it would have been over nine o'clock, nine thirty. I mean, look at the world final a few months ago. What time did that finish? Sort of seven thirty. Yeah, exactly. The key thing, the key thing here is we have come a very long way on the whole issue of late finishes for a number of reasons. One, because the standard is you know probably gone up a, a significant amount over the last ten or fifteen years in terms of you know heavy scoring and frames being over a lot quicker. So that's one factor. Also, a bit more sensible in terms of the allocation of number of frames to each session. Um, that's a factor as well. And then also, I mean, you consider they used to start the final sessions mm. of those BBC finals, n not at eight o'clock, actually, because once they'd done all the build up and everything, it was generally 8.15 mm. by the time balls were being hit. That's how we ended up with three world finals that ended all pretty much at exactly the same time. The uh, Ebden Dot final, the Robertson Dot final and the Higgins Selby final, the first one, the one in 2007 at the Crucible, all finished at about 10 to one. And none of them were even all that close. It was a combination of factors that led to that. And a lot of those factors have changed now. So uh, I think the odd late night final, you know, it, it, it is good. It, uh, it's, you know, you wouldn't want it to be happening every time. But well, I certainly enjoyed it the other night, sitting up till whatever it was, quarter to midnight watching it. Well, that's the thing. I, I wasn't really aware of what time it was. I didn't realise it was so late. I thought it was so gripping to me. And I know I was commenting. I wasn't just sat at home. But it didn't feel like the UK final, you, you could tell, was a late night. That felt like a late night. Um, the, the master, I was amazed actually how late it was. So, mm. you know, hope, hopefully that kind of people just get, got caught up in it. Um, 
the last email we've had a couple about about this subject. Pat Fitzgerald sort of sent a similar one, but Sam Martin uh, is asking this question, so let's read his. He says, "I'm emailing as I wanted to get your opinions on the future landscape of snooker. Everyone's been talking about the incoming Chinese invasion of the game for several years, and currently the most talented under 25 year olds on tour are all Chinese. With the demise of the British snooker scene, clubs are struggling to stay open, and a declining number of youth events." In 20 to 30 years, could 80% of the top 64 be Chinese? Could snooker begin to resemble women's golf, where most of the major events are won by women from South Korea? Chinese domination looks inevitable. Even if the UK had the strength of the booming 80 snooker scene, we would struggle to keep up due to population difference. Now, given the poor state of UK snooker, I can only see it going one way. All credit must be given to the Chinese. They've invested heavily in the Bay's Roots infrastructure and boast an enviable number of world-class snooker halls. Now, with the emergence of Yambing Tower's Masters champion, they have another idol after Ding Junhui. You feel it's only a matter of time before they have a world champion. While I, in Edinburgh, we have four clubs with very poorly kept snooker tables from the 80s, and they're slowly being replaced by pool tables, which make more money for the clubs. So looking forward, given our current trajectory, in 15 to 20 years, 75% of the tour could easily be from China. As, as this happens, I think the If this happens, I think the appetite from the general British snooker fan will be lessened, as there are no UK personalities to cheer on. With that viewing figures decline and more and more tournaments are based in China, I could see a situation where we have a couple of tours, a highly lucrative Asian tour with big sponsors and sparse crowds and an old-fashioned British tour where the UK is now the biggest event and held in the Crucible, effectively becoming a reverse BDO. I mean, he's talking about darts, of course, there. Mm. What are your thoughts? As it does concern me, the state of the game of the UK, and I feel the governing body is too focused on the big unethical books in the desert or quick wins in China without addressing the key issues within the game here in the UK. Short-term we will have a ban on betting sponsorship and the retirement of Barry Hearn, both of which could allow for a reset of direction. However, I think it'll lead to a lot more issues within the UK market. Well, they're all fair questions. I think, I mean, listen, we know that China have invested big, but it's taken a long time to get a top player. So the, the numbers you're talking about, they are just sort of numbers you've come up with. We, we can't say how it's going to be. I, I would have thought by now there would have been more top 16 players from China just because of the the infrastructure as you talk about. But let's be clear, and, and I accept that the UK snooker at the grassroots has declined because there's fewer clubs, that's a fact. But let's be clear, Britain has had it good for a long time. I mean, obviously, this sport made its name in Britain. Um, for a professional sport to thrive, it can't just rely on one market. It can't just rely on the British market or indeed the Chinese market. You know, it's supposed to be world snooker. Um, and but ultimately, you know, the market, like as in every sphere of life, will decide. And if if, if it becomes the case that uh, there's more sponsorship opportunities and more players and more interest, frankly, in another part of the world, then the game may gravitate there. But I'm not sure, although it would be maybe, you know, bad news for some British snooker fans, I'm not sure we can really complain because we've had it good for a long, long time. You know, Yan Bing Tao has had to move here as a teenager to live in a completely different culture, to be successful. That's a massive sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice any British players had to make. Um, and that's been historically the case. You know, even the Canadians used to have to come, come and live here, the Australians, South Africans, that to come and live in Britain to be successful. So, you know, Britain as a base has had it good for a long time. It may be that that changes. And it, there'll be a lot of people in different parts of the world who'll say, good, maybe it should. Yeah, but I mean, I, th I think the point is, you know, if, if you don't have... A decent number of top British players, then you know the game might decline in Britain in terms of its popularity, and then you obviously lose a lot of the the big tournaments. And 
And then what happens if it starts to decline in China as well? And of course, the thing about it is the, the decline in terms of participation and you know clubs and everything that's going on in the UK and has been happening for a number of years. Maybe in time that will happen in China. Difference is, of course, China's 20 times the size of Britain. So even if it did have a big decline, they could still be producing an awful lot of players. But, you know, we've, we've been talking about this, as I was saying, for about 15, 16 years now that this was going to happen. And people would have expected a lot more top players to come through from China. And at the moment, who would predict where things are going to be 15, 16 days from now, let alone that far into the future? So things in a lot of sports look like they're going to happen a certain way. And then just over time, unexpected events occur and it doesn't actually pan out that way. Way. So, yes, I mean, the, the scenario that's being painted there is certainly a possibility. But I mean, there's still a lot of very good British players who aren't that old. They just might stay around a lot longer. And maybe the standards at the top of the game won't be as high as they are uh, in 10 or 15 years from now. Um, because simply because, the, you know, the very best players that are around now might not be. But, I mean, you look at Judd Trump. I mean, 15 years from now, he'll only be the sort of age John Higgins and Ronnie O'Sullivan are at this stage. Kyron Wilson as well is even younger than Judd. So I don't think we'll see a massive demise of, of the British game. But I think it probably is very likely that the Chinese surge that we've been expecting for a long time might not happen to the extent that people thought it would. But it, I think it will probably over the next 10 years or so gradually sort of creep up. I think what helps them all is it's a lot easier for Chinese players to settle now in Britain because there are so many of them and they've formed a little sort of you know, group on the tour. I think a number of them live together. They practice together. I think that's certainly going to help them now coming through and strength in numbers will be, will be a big factor in, in the rise of more Chinese players in the years to come. You would think, but as I say, who can predict? Well, I think Ronnie O'Sullivan said something very interesting, which, which I think I, I agree with. He said about Yan's victory, he said in some ways it's more impressive than Ding coming through because Ding sort of did it on his own. There wasn't the level of investment. That all came off the back of him. Uh, he was supported yeah. He was supported to an extent, but he kind of did it on his own, whereas whereas Jan has come through and there's been this expectation on him. You know, you basically, we're a kind of snooker factory. You've got to produce the goods. He has done. Um, and I think, I think you know that inevitably there will be more, but you need, it's not just about numbers though. You need something special. You need to be something special to win these tournaments. And, and it's not just about you know, I mean, think of all the people who had the same opportunities as O'Sullivan and Higgins and Williams and didn't do anything in snooker. Okay, mm -hmm. it's not just about that; it's about actually being any good, isn't it? It's about actually having the, the mentality, the dedication, all the other things. Um, it'd be interesting. I think I think things will change over the coming years. Whether they're as dramatic as the picture that's been painted there, we just don't know. Uh, but uh, we will uh, we will follow it. Now then, uh, final question on the on the Masters. Owen Burt, it was quite a long email, Owen. I'm just going to crystallise your set the Masters be a ranking event. Um, in some ways, there's logic to it because pretty much everything else is now. Um, yeah. Uh, so why, why is that not? Um, it's always, of course, been the game's leading invitation event. Its prestige comes from the fact it's just for the elite. You could argue that, OK, everyone has the chance to get into it. It's not quite the same chance, though, because there's some first-season professionals who don't have the two-year points who are not going to get in the Masters. It's not like the the uh, the World Grand Prix, the Players Championship, the Tour Championship. That's for the this season. So everyone kind of starts on zero. That's the same chance. It's not the case for the Masters. I personally don't think. I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but I don't personally think most viewers care. I think they want to watch good quality snooker. They didn't turn off Higgins O'Sullivan because there's no ranking points available. Mm. Um, the Masters has established itself. It doesn't. Uh, to me, it doesn't need anything else. It doesn't need ranking points. And let's be honest, it would skew the list massively if you gave the top 16 more, more ranking points. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with, with all of that, really. Uh, and I think, 
the distinction between ranking events and non-ranking events is probably less important now in, in, in many respects because, you know, you've got, in most tournaments, you've got everyone starting at the same round anyway. Now, I know you've got the elite events like the World Grand Prix, the Players' Championship and the Tour Championship, but they're not based on the world rankings anyway. I mean, they're based on the one-year list. So it's not about the, you know, where where they are in the um, in your actual sort of two-year ranking. So, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you on that. I think just maybe maintains that air of it being almost a bit aloof, a bit above the rankings. Yeah. Yeah, so something a bit like that. So uh, I thought you'd like that. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. You know, let, let, let's not talk about vulgar things like ranking points in the middle yeah, of the yeah. Masters. You know, it's that kind of vibe to it. So, but yeah. I do agree with you as well. I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference uh, to the general public, and also it probably would skew things quite a lot as well. I mean, some people might say as it is at the moment. Obviously, you know, winning the World Championship should be worth significantly more points than anything else, but. Some would say there's a bit too much of an imbalance there now. Um, and if you had, you know, the winner of the Masters, who, let's face it, only has to win four matches to win it and play five sessions of snooker, albeit that they're all against very good players. If you had someone doing that and getting half the number of points you get for winning the World Championship, that might skew things further. So I think, yeah, leave leave it as it is. And I don't think there's been any particular talk of the Masters becoming well, a ranking event anyway. Well, here's the thing. My prediction is if it did become one, may, uh, this maybe would be more likely to happen in the past than now. If it did become one, the next thing would be, well, why don't we have more players in it? And suddenly mm. there's 32 players. And then it just becomes another tournament. It, it, it's proven its worth, I think, over the years. One one event that's trying to prove its worth, of course, is a new event, the Pro Series. That, that's begun this week. Um, you know, they talk about after the Lord Mayor's show. Obviously, it's a very, very different, uh, different event. It's a league. So there's different groups, eight players in each group. They all play each other. It's not on television, and I can't, when I looked at the format properly, and only only redid it yesterday, I worked out why it's not on TV because it's no good for telly. This tournament, um, there's four tables, but because everyone plays so many matches, essentially, the, the, for example, the number one seed on day one was Joe Perry. He played, I think, all but one of his matches on the main table, and the, and so therefore you just see the same person every day taking on someone different. Now, if you're asking a TV company to show something all day long, and you literally just see the same person. Play, you know, playing, okay, they're playing different players, but there's not a lot of variety there for me. And also best of threes, you know, I mean, that's, we think the Championship League is best of five. We think that's cutthroat. This is very cutthroat. So at the moment, it doesn't have TV coverage. Hopefully the final stage will, we'll see. We, we, we don't know about that. But James Heat asks a question regarding this. He says, Championship League as well. He says, where does the prize money for the Championship League come from? Especially before COVID. It's always been behind closed doors and wasn't on TV. So no ticket sales and no TV money. The Pro Tour is ranking, so I'm surprised we have no commentary for that, yet we get commentary for the Championship League, which is usually non-ranking. Overall, it seems a lower-key event than the Championship League, even though it's ranking. I still watch it on betting sites and Matchroom Live. I was looking forward to listening to your commentary. Well, James, um, in terms of where the Championship League gets his money from, they get it from the betting sites. They pay to show it, um, and it's very, very popular because people do do bet on it. Um, it's always it traditionally sort of it's held in the in the first week of the year where there's not that much of the sport going on, and they found that during the daytime, a lot of people do bet on it. So betting sites pay for it. Of course, it's now in free sports as well. Uh, the Pro Tour obviously it's only just started. I guess they just don't have the resources to pay, you know, for a full production. It actually looks quite good. I watched a bit of it yesterday on on Matchroom Live. The set's really nice. It looks good. It's on Matchroom Live for free, which is good. Um, it may, you know, it may be something they they invest in later on, but I guess they're just establishing it. I'm a little bit surprised because because the thing is, the two events are run by the Championship League's run by Matchroom, and World Snooker Tour run the Pro Series, and I would have thought they would try and 
maybe match what Matchroom had done because there's a little friendly rivalry between the two. They're all part of the same associate, same organisation. They're all Barry Earns people. But there's, I think it's fair to say there's a bit of rivalry between the two sides mm. of it. So I'm slightly surprised they didn't try and make a bit more of it. But it's listen, it's the first they're having the first go at it, and I guess money is tight. They've had to pour money into the prize fund and everything else. Um, so we'll see. You've got to give it a chance, I suppose. Um, are, you, are you sure the rivalry's all that friendly? Well, I wasn't. I wasn't going. I wasn't going to get into that. But no, listen. They, they're all. They're all. They're all competitive people. They're working in sports. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The pro series. I mean, look, it's there as a filler, isn't it? I mean, I, I think if the events in China that were supposed to be on in March had mm. gone ahead, we would never have heard of the pro series. It's there to give the players something to play in, I think, yeah. and to get them all in. Maybe you have to do best of three, so it'll fulfil that purpose. Will it still be around next year? I'd be surprised. Okay. Well. That's the Masters covered, I think, and, and, and indeed the Pro Series. Now then, I'm going to say this as, this is a warning, okay? this We don't shy away from controversy on this podcast. I think if you've listened in the past... Positively will, embrace it. Yeah, you and, and so anyone, you know, of, of a sensitive disposition, you know, you, I'm just warning you, okay? This is, this is a very controversial email. It's also one of my favourite ever emails we've received, okay? It's from Kerry Richards, who writes, Firstly, a huge thanks to for your podcast. Although I'm a long-standing subscriber, the weekly episodes during lockdown have been even more enjoyable, if that's possible. And they always accompany my daily walk after work each evening. You strike exactly the right balance between dry humour, understatedness, knowledge and niche. It's a fantastic listen. Thank you very much, Kerry. Mm. Now then, continuing. Talking of niche, and this being the first time I've emailed, I thought I'd maybe test the boundaries, although my apologies if this topic has previously been covered. To the best of my knowledge, it hasn't. When watching John Higgins line up a pink in last night's first-round Masters match with Mark Allen, it got me thinking about the colours of the balls on the snooker table. More specifically, the rhetorical question that if you could rewind the clock to when snooker was invented, would you change the colour of the balls? I did say this was controversial. I warned people. So if you're driving now you know, and you want to pull over, please take care. OK, continuing. It's obviously very difficult imagining the balls any other way, but I feel the pink is punching well above its weight and is far too highly rated at six. In addition, I'd shelved the green due to the green bays. I'm also struggling with the drab brown. I also feel the yellow and blue could be promoted. On the flip side, I'd consider introducing new colours such as orange and purple, both brighter and stronger colours than the pink, brown or green. So in summary, I go with the following. Brown worth two, a lucky albeit downgraded stay of execution. Orange three, purple four, yellow five, blue six and black solid at seven. White and red remain as they are. As an aside... A knowledgeable friend of mine told me Joe Davis's unsuccessful Snooker Plus venture included the orange and purple, despite this, I'm happy to offer a second chance. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. You know, you, you exploded a, a, a political hot potato there. Uh, in terms of Snooker Plus, because they were extra balls, orange and purple, mm. so they, they, they were extra balls. The, the most obvious thing to say is if you, if you changed the value of the balls, it would create complete chaos because, because people would have to relearn, A, where they went, be what they were worth. It would be like power snooker when you know you just you were watching it. And you thought well, someone's gone up hundred points. You don't know why because they potted a brown. I think, but I think you make some. Firstly, I think you're a bit harsh on the pink. I think the pink, the pink has been a. Good, There's a sentence I never yeah. thought I'd hear. The pink has been. Listen, I was thinking about this. The pink has been a good servant to snooker because the pink is a versatile ball. Okay, very often the pink is not on its spot. It doesn't complain. It'll go behind the pack, or if the you know if the brown spot's free, it'll go on the brown spot. It's versatile. It'll go wherever it needs to on the table. I don't personally. I don't trust the yellow. The yellow's a bit wishy-washy for me. I don't think you can promote the yellow. The yellow is lucky to be there to start with. The green. I kind of agree with you. It is a bit odd to have green on green. Of course, it's a very different shade of green deliberately. 
just seem a bit strange. They couldn't think of another colour, though, to, oh, we've got a green base. What colour should we make this ball? I know, green. Uh, so that's, I've always, yeah, sort of felt that as well. I'll tell you the ball I don't trust, okay? Uh, we're getting Are into you the... still talking? Yeah, we're getting into... No, listen, we're, this is... This... We're, 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 we're through the looking glass here. No we're other podcast... with the Matrix. No other podcast will discuss this. You don't get yeah, this There's on... a good reasons for that. You, you don't get this on Jake Humphrey's award-winning podcast, do you? No, you don't get uh, this. Well, exactly, that's why he's award-winning. <laughs> and we're, we're just sitting here in our respective bedrooms talking to each other over laptops, but come on, anyway. <laughs> the ball I don't trust is the brown, okay? The brown is a sly ball, okay? The brown... It minds its own business a little bit too much for me. It doesn't get involved. I reckon, and I've got no evidence for this, but, you know, so, so sue me. I reckon the brown is the least potted ball of all the colours, right? Because obviously, yeah, yeah. Because obviously in most breaks, you're going to have black, pink and blue. They're going to be in play. Yeah. Um, and even a frame, say you make a break of 103, you might pot yellow and green, you might not pot the brown. The brown is just kind of there. Uh, and it's a troublemaker as well, because quite often we'll go in amongst the reds. And for colourblind players like Mark Williams, Peter Edden, Peter Edden, Mark Fu, I think, you know, causes trouble. He's a troublemaker, the Brown. And maybe the Brown is the one, if you're going to get rid of any ball, you know, maybe it's time either shape up or, or ship out, is what I'm saying to the Brown. So that's yeah, a- yeah, but, but, you know, the Brown is the only revenue-generating colour in the history of the game because the Brown ball, famously, or rather infamously, was sponsored by uh, a source company at the Masters. 16 years ago. Now, there what other colour can say that? Well, no, but there, yeah, but some would say sellout. You see, I said Sly, didn't I? I said a troublemaker commercialising itself. What I'll about the other bra- ball? Only, yeah, only, well, for, only for him. But bra- it was only for the brown. He didn't think of the yellow or any, any other colour, did he? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't think Barry would ever use the term sellout because he, he well, he might use the term sellout and rub his hands and say that was fantastic. You know, look where he's taken the game to. Uh, uh, what I'm going to say now sounds like a joke, but I mean it in absolute seriousness. And it goes back to something we were talking about. I think it was on the last podcast where uh, someone mailed in about the red and white shirts that we had at the British Open for uh, for a couple of years. And I was saying how it didn't actually achieve anything for the game. In fact, it was intended to distract from how badly the game was being run at the time and how many things were going wrong. Quite honestly, if, well, firstly, if podcasts had existed as a thing back in those days and somebody had been listening to this, they might have thought, oh, this is great. Let's change up the colours. Let's mix up the values. You know, let's mix it up a bit. And someone might actually have tried it and thought, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to revolutionise the game. And we might have been stuck with it for a long time. Uh, But uh, thankfully, we've moved on from those days. I mean, I would be interested. I don't see any problem with it at all in terms of how they're allocated. But I, I just wonder how they decided which ball was going to be which. Or was it all just basically at random that they just pick balls up and pick up colours off the top of their heads? We don't even know who really it was that established it in its current well, form. Well, I guess, the, 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 to be serious for a minute, I guess the, yeah. the, the balls came from other sports, didn't they? So it was just what was available, I suppose. Um, but here's the thing. Can you imagine if they say it was announced tomorrow, the green's being replaced by a purple? Can you imagine the absolute backlash there would be from, mm. from snooker fans? Let's be honest, and we, we are part of this. Most snooker fans are kind of traditionalists. We like, that's why we like snooker. We like things to be sort of, we like continuity. If, if, if they replace the green with the purple, you know, that, that riot at the Capitol building the other week would look like a, a lot of fuss about nothing. You can imagine I would people. Jo- Go on. I was going to, I would join Twitter specifically yeah. to join in the backlash. Yeah. So I think in summary, um, <laughs> in summary, I'm going to defend the pink. I'm, I'm suspicious of the brown, but basically I think we leave it as it is because otherwise it would create a lot of trouble. And when uh, you say suspicious of the brown, just to clarify, you're not referring to Jordan Brown. 
No, or, or, indeed, yeah. or indeed Gordon Brown. <laughs> or Paddy Brown. Oh, no, I'd yeah. be suspicious of Gordon Brown. Yeah. But anyway, let's let's not go down that road. I remember someone years ago, didn't they, suggested adding a purple Wayne or Brown something like well. that. Wayne Brown. So, okay, right. We've done the whole Brown thing, all right? Yeah. The, um, what was I talking about? That? Oh, yeah. Someone years ago suggested, wouldn't it be great if Snooker introduced a purple ball? And it's like, well, you know, why would it be great? Oh, it would just be great, wouldn't it? And I remember Neil Folds hearing that, and he was saying, uh, you sort of imagine someone running a shop that sold purple snooker balls, and they, they they were about to they were about to shut down because you know they didn't get any trade, and just at the very moment they were about to pull down the shutters for the last time, sort of Paul Collier or Martin Clark or someone from the tournament office turns up saying, "We've decided to introduce a purple ball. Can you provide us with ten thousand of them by next week, and the business would be saved." The feel-good story of the year. Yeah, Neil, Neil loves these fantasy stories. Anyone who was listening to the Scooby-Doo thing would, uh, would, would certainly relate to that. But look, why, why do we need to mess with it? Why, why does this go on in snooker? You know, this doesn't go on in other sports that people sit around coming up with these ideas to completely change the game. I mean, you look at something like cricket has experimented a lot with things like 2020 and stuff like that. But that's basically just reducing the length of the match. And I mean, every sport, you know, experiments with things like that. But I don't know what it is about snooker. People always seem to feel that uh, it needs to be changed in some way. And uh, I don't really feel it does. But well, anyway, it's a bit of humour, that yeah. one. My last word on Wayne Brown, he had the worst nickname ever, the Toad. They called him the Toad. Can you can you imagine? Now, he didn't necessarily reach a very high level, but can you imagine if he played in the Masters? There's Rob Walker having to introduce... Please welcome the Toad, <laughs> Wayne Brown. Come on. Anyway. Well, well, actually, yeah. no, speaking of nicknames now, this brings us to the real story of the Masters, OK? Because they, they had all the, 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 photo, the pictures of the players... Yes. Uh, you know, around the set, and they have their nicknames written beneath them, the Wizard of Wish or On Fire or the Magician, or things like that. Now, Tep Chayon knew. What was listed as his nickname? F1, I think. Oh, right, because I was looking at it all week. Every time it cut to that angle, uh, I was looking at it, and I thought it was two question marks. So I wondered, had they put that there and thought, oh, we'll better well, find out what his nickname is. But okay, so maybe it was F one. That would oh, F one, yeah. Well, there's a couple. Yeah. Of, I thought that artwork was brilliant. It was. It's, it was last last year they introduced it, and it, yeah. they were good. I thought they were good. But there's a couple of things. They they there was a big sort of hand wringing discussion. I would call it last year about Dave Gilbert. They didn't want to call him the angry farmer. They had to call him yeah. the, far, the farmer. Which come on, we're all we're all adults for goodness' sake. We're all grown ups, uh, apart from apart from children who are not. Uh, and and the other one was uh, Mark Allen, the pistol. They wouldn't put a gun on on the graphic because they thought it looked a bit a bit rum. They're happy to call him the pistol, just not show a yeah. pistol. You know, it wouldn't have been on. at all inappropriate for oh. someone born in Northern Ireland <laughs> in the 1980s to you know put a pistol up. Well, yeah, but don't call him the pistol then. You know, call him something yeah, else. Yeah, well, you know, it's either one or the other. Anyway, that, we'll move on. Um, I think it's fair to say this is a question, and there's thousands of podcasts, by the way. There's there's probably hundreds of thousands now. You know, yeah. if, if you're not on a podcast, frankly, what are you doing with your life? But I'm guaranteed this question will never have been asked on any other podcast in the world. Okay, it's from William Smith. He says, "Hi, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm sure you will. The Professional Players Tournament of 1983 was held in Bristol. Do you know what the venue was? That's it. That's it. That's his question. Well, I'm pretty sure it's Redwood Lodge, uh, where they played a lot of snooker in Bristol." Um, so I believe that's the answer, William. Um, they they they, uh, they played the English. The English, that was the last venue, wasn't it, for the old English professional championship? Uh, was Redwood Lodge. Yeah. So I think it probably was for the professional players tournament as well. Maybe William Smith could write a rap about it, and you know. Well, I, I see. Go I, back I, to Bel Air and do that. No, you, you know? see, I I deliberately didn't go there because he actually the email said it was from Will Smith. I didn't go there because I'm sure he's heard that before. I'm guessing you're not the first person to have brought that no, up. I I, so I know. I well, I'm just I mean, trying to answer his question. I'm not yeah. getting involved in that. 
Well, you you got to get involved. It's like the time I had to interview someone called Mark Chapman, and I just got it out of the way straight off. I said, you know, I'll I'll, I'll make the John Lennon reference now, yeah. and then we can get on with the interview. Yeah. It was Redwood Lodge, by the way. I just had a look at it there yeah. online. Tony oh, Knowles, the winner. Richard Westcott, who I believe is still the BBC science correspondent, um, he said, why do so many break-offs seem to leave a red on? Has anyone ever experimented with a different type of break-off? Maybe around the angles to leave the ball at the back of the pack. Or, well, at yeah. some, or at least something that doesn't immediately hand the opponent a chance to score. As ever, compliments for such a unique and enjoyable podcast. Thank you, Richard. Well, of course, Mark Williams in the Masters played, just rolled up to the back of the pack. The problem mm. is, though, the problem is, here's the thing, OK, and this is why I think the standard break-off shot will remain. You can do that. I mean, Steve Davis at one point rolled off the side of the, you know, side cushion into the pack. Eventually, you've got to break the reds up. Someone's got to do it. Um, so the shot to break the reds up will be played. Um, you might as well do it for the shot. It, 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 it is interesting how many times it seems to slightly go wrong, but quite often they leave a red on and it's not potted. It's not like every break-off is a disaster, far from it. But it is. it seems to be a shot that we talk about more certainly than we used to. Yeah, I mean, leaving a red on from the break-off can actually be to your advantage because, as you say, it isn't always potted and then you can get in off that. I remember talking to Gary Baldry. Remember him? He was a yeah. um, professional player. His um, He runs the Star Academy in Sheffield. Yeah, that's right. He was involved with a lot of the early Chinese players who came over, actually, including, I think, Ding for a while. And his sister was married uh, to Peter Ebden, of course. That's right, isn't it? I don't want to get yeah, that wrong. So. Yeah, yeah. But I remember talking to him about it and saying, look, you know, surely, like, these guys are so good, they must be able to figure out a way of playing a break-off shot that it's not foolproof. <laughs> but that most of the time you're going to get safe off it. And he said, now, I, this is where he was losing me a bit because I think these are the sort of technicalities that only really, really good players understand. And he was talking about the cushions and the way they're set up and the way that you get the bounce off them now. He was saying it's actually impossible to do, that, that there is no set shot you can play that's going to give you, you know, a very high chance of getting safe. That you, There's always the risk, no matter what break-off shot you play, that you're going to leave something. Sean Murphy, who's one of the you know people who's always thinking and tinkering and experimenting, he turned up at the Championship League about five or six years ago. I think he went into the pack off about three cushions. And all that happened was you got 10 minutes of absolute boredom after yeah. that because it was all just containing safeties, really. There was, you know, there was, there was nothing you know uh, appealing about it. It wasn't attacking safety at all. It was just... OK, you're going to roll into the pack. I'm going to roll back to bulk. You're going to roll back into the pack. And we'll keep that going for about 10 or 15 minutes. And he didn't persevere with it after that. So um, I suppose it's something we'll be talking about for, for a very long time, really, because, you know, as, as we've established, there doesn't really seem to be a way for players to play a break-off shot that in all likelihood is going to leave them safe. But as I say, leaving a red on can actually turn out to your advantage anyway. Our next email is from Steve Dunn. Do you want to make any quips about his name or should we, should we move on? No, no, we've done that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that shouldn't make me laugh, but it does. Okay, he says, uh, Steve Dunn, he says, my question is more of a discussion point. I'm 35. I think it's clear that over my life, snooker clubs are becoming more and more rare. I guess, I guess Steve is, is from the UK. He says, despite all the great work Barry Hearn's done in expanding the game's reach, my concern is for the future at grassroots level. Where are the future Hendrys and Ronnies going to learn their craft? Well, we've talked about this a fair bit. Mm. And the snooker club shutting down. The only thing I would say is, okay, very clear from when we were young and when Ronnie and John Higgins and Mark Williams and so on took snooker up, the culture has changed. Okay, the culture has changed in Britain. Cultures can change back again. And it's interesting. Uh, I was reading about the explosion in interest in chess recently. And a lot of it is because this drama, The Queen's Gambit, was on Netflix last year. And it was on over lockdown. A lot of people watched it. And suddenly chess became kind of sexy again and became something 
it's actually it's not an easy game by any means, obviously, but it's quite easy to, to take up. You don't need you know a special room in your house. You need a chessboard effectively, or even you can play it online. So it's not beyond the realms that you know the, the, the sort of popular culture could help. Um, maybe increase interest in snooker in some way. You just don't know how things are going to turn out. I think you know there is a concern about the grassroots. There's a lot of work being done by the WPBSA in particular and the sort of various affiliated bodies that they work with. But you can't force people to play ultimately. And you know, it, it's I, I guess it, it becomes about that we've spoken before about the sort of the, the broken link between if fathers no longer take sons or indeed daughters to snooker clubs, the link kind of gets broken. Uh, it's hard to see how that can just be magically repaired again. Maybe what they need to do is rerun that episode of Terry and June where they played snooker. <laughs> the one we were talking about. Yeah, that that will get that will get the kids on board. Yeah. It would be great, actually. You know, I mean, I'm very skeptical of this whole influencer scene and all the rest of it. But um, not making myself sound old at all with the oh, way that sentence oh. came out. But I mean, it would, it would be a big thing. I mean, you know, if a couple of you know people who are very high profile, I don't know, pop stars or movie stars or whatever, you know, were to talk about being interested in snooker. I mean, that, that, that is the sort of thing that could maybe fuel it a bit. I always thought a trick was missed. Never, because I, I don't think it ever happened, inviting the Rolling Stones to the World Championship final, because, I mean, they were really big snooker fans. I know Ronnie Wood ended up coming a number of times, but he was just there, you know, as part of the entourage with Jimmy or Ronnie or whoever. Uh, you know, it should have been a thing. Invite them along, you know, get them sitting in the front row, even if it was only for one frame or whatever, like, you know, William Hague all those years ago. Which <laughs> I'd say probably had the opposite effect. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, stuff like that, you know, perhaps should be encouraged. And uh, Geoffrey Archer, of course, when he became uh, president of the WPBSA shortly before he went to prison, um, he, he he said he was going to bring a lot of uh, yeah. celebrities along. And uh, I, yeah. I think the best... It, well, yeah, he really managed... Back- well, he had yeah, he brought a lot of he brought he brought a bank robber, he brought a murderer, yeah, lots yeah, of people yeah, he yeah. met inside, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but it, um, I think what well, wasn't uh, well, Bill Maynard came along, did he, or was it Buster Merrifield or something like that? Yeah. But okay, that Buster was never Mer- Buster, Mer- Buster, Buster Merrifield, who, who for those who don't know, who are not yeah. necessarily mid- middle-aged, played Uncle Albert in Only Fools and Horses. He came to one of the tournaments in Bournemouth, and uh, fair play to him, he had every right to. He got absolutely drunk as as a skunk. Honestly, he got so drunk you wouldn't believe. Yeah, but the, the um, you know, at least an effort was being made yes. on that front. I mean, I couldn't, yeah, well, certainly, I couldn't believe it. I think it was ten years ago this year. One of the lads from Westlife yes. came along to the Crucible, and I mean, you know, there wasn't much made of that. You know, bring him out well, into the arena, have him wait. Well, well yes, exactly. Yeah. Was yeah. Hang on, you've you've opened yeah. a, a gaping sore. I don't know. I want I want you to tell this story because it's my favourite Crucible moment. I was sat. As a member of the media, by the way, in the press seats, okay, they are there for journalists. I was sat, and I don't, I didn't go in there very often because I had work to do. But I went in, and someone tapped me on the shoulder. I'm going to say it was Brendan Moore. It probably wasn't, but I'm just going to blame Brendan. It was one of those sort of guys. And he said, "Oh, uh, yeah, after this frame, I'm afraid you're going to have to move because um, Westlife are going to be coming and they're going to sit here." Now, there's two things about this. One, Westlife are not journalists. They may have been very successful in their career. They ain't journalists. Two, it wasn't Westlife. It was, as you say, one of Westlife. And just a few random pals. So, mm. so Westlife can do one, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you weren't the only one actually to feel that way because uh, Willie Thorne had brought along one of the cast of Outvider Saint Pet, and had promised him a spot in the press seats. And he was he was told basically, um, I think it was Timothy Spall actually. Is that how it's pronounced? He Tim, uh, Healy, Tim Healy, maybe. I think he did come one year. Well, anyway. whichever one, it was certainly one of the guys from Outvider Saint Pet. And he got treated the same way as you. So, you know, you were in decent company there. 
Um, but I remember Willie's reaction was hilarious. I mean, just for the sheer inaccuracy of it. Okay, it was understandable. He was a little bit embarrassed. But he said, this guy was in Alveda St. Pest. Now, bear in mind, this is 10 years ago. He's far more famous than anyone from Westlife. <laughs> well, I'm on Willie's side on, on that. Yeah. Story. But you mentioned William Hague, okay? Yeah. Do, do you remember who William Hague's press officer was at the time? Was it Pretty Patel? It was Pretty Patel, yeah. now the oh, Home yeah. Secretary. And I, have, and I have to say, and this is not... This is not um, question time. This is not, you know, this is not a week in Westminster or whatever. But she was horrible. <laughs> she was absolutely wow. horrible. And I would say she still is, personally. Anyway, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, yeah. What else have we got here? Um, Matt Tarrant. He's, he's playing a compliment so backhanded here, he could actually play in the Australian Open, which is coming up. <laughs> he says, of the podcast, he says, we love the nicheness and lack of production. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> oh, that's what we've aspired to. A quarter yeah. of a century in broadcasting, and the first time we get complimented for our yeah. production values, it's because of the lack of them. Fantastic. He, he says, I'm reluctant to mention this idea, but have you considered a theme tune? <laughs> my, nomination be, yeah. my, my nomination will be Lola by the Kinks after Michael's story, episode 131. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah we won't go into that again. But no, it takes too long. They will listen to. I'm guessing the suggested theme music from listeners and the ensuing debate could be of interest and amusement. Of course, we wouldn't actually have a theme tune as it would be way too professional and there would be money implications. You're absolutely right there. Maybe, unless we wrote it ourselves, of course, maybe this theme could be for Dave Tyndall's next tournament. If a music debate isn't a great idea in a Stuka podcast, please email Dave and let him know. I'm sure he's listening. Finally, I have thought having the World Championships in August was a great idea. I was able to watch much more than I've been able to in, in many years. I'm 53. Folk tend to have more time in August. Is the mileage in considering a rethink for the calendar? We have an opportunity when Stuka is rebooted to maximise potential. Well, Matt, of course, the reason it was in August was because those two weeks were going to be for the Olympics and the BBC had cleared their schedules. Um, I, it's not really a summer sport, is it? It worked this year because it was a very different year and people were happy to see it. I'm not sure it would do the tournament any good. I mean, to be fair, the weather in April is usually good anyway, but in mm. August you expect it to be you know, the hottest it's going to be during the year. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, you make a point about maybe more people can watch it. They're, you know, they're on holiday season. They may just be on holiday though. They may, may not watch it at all. Uh, let's I, uh, let, let's go with the whole hog and have Christmas in June while we're at it. <laughs> I mean, I can't wait for the World Championship to get back to its proper date. And yeah. you know, the, the, the great thing about it is you, you, you slog through the winter. And in this part of the world, you know, Britain and Ireland, where you and I respectively live, I mean, the winter's just horrible. It's it's never anything other than horrible. And snooker's what keeps you going through it. And then. By the end of it, you know, it's it's amazing. The World Championship always seems to come at that point where the weather is finally turning. You feel you, you've really seen the back of winter and, you know, you've got the whole summer to look forward to. It's such a feel-good thing. So I, I would personally never want to see it change. As for the theme tune idea, maybe didn't I write a rap about Matthew Stevens all those years <laughs> ago? Maybe, maybe we could put that in. Yes. I, 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 was, I was thinking, of course, we were talking in recent episodes about maybe doing a live show. So perhaps we could have walk-on songs there. But you just know it would all end up exactly like um, an afternoon with Alan Partridge in the Travel Tower, <laughs> where, where he has it on a synthesizer and he can't get it to stop. So, yes. um, yeah, it would probably go that way. But but, but come on, let's, we've got to do this. We've got to at least invite suggestions from listeners yes. as to what our theme tune would be. That, that's gonna, I, I sense that's going to lead to some fantastic emails and ideas in the coming weeks. Do let us know. By the way, my lawyer, my lawyer has just emailed to say <laughs> some people think Pretty Patel's great. Other, <laughs> other, other opinions are available. So that's that's the other side of that argument. Um, finally, last email of the week, Ryan Freeman. He writes, hang on, just got to get it on the screen. 
Hi, lads. My question is just a quick hypothetical, not terribly important one, but it's something I've always wondered. Let's say in a final, is there potentially a time limit for when the match could be going on on too long to complete? Now, we all love a classic late-night snooker finish, last year's UK final being the most recent. I know the chances of this happening are very, very slim, but let's say a final got to two, three, or even four in the morning, and they were still playing, and there was another frame left. Would it get to a point where they would take the players off and finish the final the next day? It would surely get to a point where the well-being and tiredness of the players and supporters would have to come into effect. Obviously, the fans' point is moot in the current situation, but I'm talking normal times, and of course, it would be also hinge if the arena would be able to be used again the next day. Possibly problems would be if the arena was being used for something else or technically weren't allowed because World Snooker had only rented it the official days of the tournament and couldn't extend it. Uh, it goes on a little bit, but he says, yes, so I'd be hoping you'd be able to answer this hypothetical question. It's been swirling around my head for years now. Many thanks to keep up the great work. Well, Ryan, um, I think they would just continue. Um, we've had finals. I mean, there was the Grand Prix final, 85. Mm. Uh, was Steve Davis got his revenge over Dennis Taylor. Happy birthday, Dennis, by the way. Uh, 10-9. And um, it's Dennis's birthday today. That's why I said that. Ten uh, yes. nine, but that was like two in the morning. It was even later than the world final. But it, I know they, it's it's they just slogged on. It's funny that rarely gets mentioned, you know, because there's so much talk about the '85 final. It hardly ever gets mentioned that the next BBC final was between the same two players, and it went on almost two hours later than the world final. Now I know that was the world final, but it, it's funny that it never gets mentioned. I, I actually um, have experienced something not entirely dissimilar to this at the 2006 Irish Open Golf. And now, it wasn't because it went on too late. It was simply because, as is always the case in Ireland, as I alluded to, it was chucking it down. So they had to stop playing on the final day and come back and finish it off on the Monday morning. The Irish Open is one of the best attended golf events on the European Tour. So it was such an anticlimax. I found myself back there at 9 o'clock on a Monday morning, maybe 20 or 30 people there to watch for the last few holes of the tournament. And it was a very good tournament with some very big names in it. Such an anticlimactic feeling. But, um, I mean, what reason would there be to, to, to pull the players off? I mean, there's nothing else to come on. And, you know, you, you think, I mean, some of those world finals I was alluding to earlier, the Ebden Dot one, the Higgins Selby one, the Robertson Dot one as well, they'd gone the distance. They would certainly have gone to about 2 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. It's slightly different, but it's related. In the early days of Eurosport, there was an issue where, because they didn't maybe understand necessarily how long the finals would last. There was one final where they didn't book the satellite um, for long. Oh, right. China Open. It was before I started there. China Open, I think 2006. And it was Mark Williams, John Higgins. It went to a decide. It was eight each. Now, Denise Higgins, John's wife, was watching it in Spain. Okay. <laughs> but she watched the whole match, cheering John on. It's gone eight each. Settle down for the decider. Deciding frame finish. Cheering her husband on. And it all went down. The satellite went down. They didn't book the time long enough. Uh, now, in those days, you know, she maybe had no internet with her. It was like 2006, not, smartphones, I don't think, were a thing then or anything. So she basically had no way of knowing what was happening. And obviously, she thinks something wrong with the telly and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Eventually, the, they got the, they booked the extra time. and But they, they came back and it was the trophy presentation, right? So the final was over. And she saw John with a trophy. And she thought, well, OK, we didn't see the, the, the final frame, but fantastic. John's won. But actually, because in China, it's quite a formal thing. There was a runners-up trophy, which was what, which was what oh, John, right. was, which was what John was holding, and then there's Mark Williams with the much bigger trophy and like the garland around his neck as the champion. So uh, thankfully, those days are long gone. But yeah, I think you just play till it's over. Uh, well, so, we, we have to mention this now, not least because this week is the 20th anniversary of it happening. Right. Alan Chamberlain 
famously saying to a player oh, during yeah, the yeah. final, <laughs> come on, get a move on, the TV goes off at such and such a time. Yeah. And the best thing about the fact that we've brought that anecdote into the picture is, of course, that the player in question was Fergal O'Brien, who in the one hour and 12 minutes we've been talking, we had not mentioned. But as regular listeners will know, it's pretty much obligatory that we mention him every week. So that allows us to get him in right at the end. It was ITV, and I think they had an FA Cup match or something to come on. Yeah, and and he he did say that to Fergal, and you know you can imagine just a picture of Fergal's face when when that uh, when that is uh, delivered. So well, we got to the end uh, almost without mentioning him, but there we are. There's your weekly Fergal O'Brien mention. If you've got any comments about anything you've heard, particularly the big issues, which are the theme tune um, and also the coloured balls, you know, do, do, should that change? Do, do you trust the brown? All that sort of stuff. Uh, let us know. Can't wait. Yeah, let us know. I'm busy. I'm busy for the next couple of weeks, Dave. Yeah. I won't be available for this. Yeah. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. That's snooker scene podcast at mail.com. You can always send us your thoughts. Apologies if we didn't get to your uh, email. We got slightly sidetracked a couple of times, but there we are. So um, that is it. Uh, unless you've got anything else to say? No, I think we've said it all there. I think we've said it all. Mm. We'll be back next week. So thank you for listening and do get in touch, as I say, and enjoy. Uh, the Pro Series, but it should say as well, the German Masters, of course, starts mm. next week. Uh, not in Germany, but um, which is a huge shame because, I mean, that, that is a fantastic uh, week at the Tempodrome. But um, good luck to everyone involved in that. We'll see you next next time for now. As we always say, i.e. we said for the first time last week, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.